he had described God as being jealous in one of his sermons. Uh, the boy, you know, he viewed jealousy as a bad thing, right? And so he was worried at this idea that God could be jealous. And Dr. Ferguson notes uh, that one way that he could have explained this difficulty to the boy would have been to respond, what's a small little boy like you concerned with questions like that? What a foolish question to ask. And of course, at that point, the boy's mother would have come down upon him in great wrath and let him know just how foolish he was for responding that way to her son. And then he could have turned to the boy and said, would you want a God who did not respond the way your mother just did when his child was mistreated? Would you want a God where if someone demeans or defiles his people, he just stands back and never does a thing about it. Maybe you are conscious of the vast mistreatment that goes on in this world, and you struggle with this question. God certainly doesn't always intervene right when we would want him to, does he? If you are unsure whether the Lord is passionately jealous for his people, then you need to see his final judgment, which is what Joel shows us today in the last chapter of his prophecy. He shows us a picture of the day of judgment. So we've seen so far in our study on Joel, we've seen our idolatry through the day of disaster, chapter 1. We've seen our urgent need to live lives of repentance. That was the first section of chapter 2. We've seen the, the satisfying blessing of the Lord in the day of blessing. That's the second half of chapter 2. And now we've, we turn and we see God's passion for his people in the day of judgment. Now, Joel shows us God's passion for his people in three layers here. Each layer contains a message for God's people and a message for their enemies. And so we look first at verses 1 to 8, and we see vindication and vengeance. Vindication for God's people and vengeance on their enemies. So my first point, vindication and vengeance. And it's important, before we get going here, to understand the timeline of this text. Uh, where are these events that Joel is describing in the history of God's world? Verse 1 begins, in those days and at that time, which is not terribly specific, and so we've got to look back, right? We've got to peek back at chapter 2 to see what those days are. And we see that Joel was talking about a time after the pouring out of the Spirit, in that day, verse 32, when those who call in the name of the Lord are saved from destruction. And so as we turn to chapter 3, we're dealing with a prophecy here about those final days surrounding the judgment of all people. This is very important when it comes to applying this text because it means that when Joel talks about, you know, things that are going to happen to Judah or Israel here, uh, those are things that will actually happen to the new Israel, which we saw in our series on Ephesians in chapter 2, that Christ, Christ created in himself by uniting Jew and Gentile together into one people, a new Israel, founded on the apostles and known to us as the church. 
And so the message for God's church here in this first layer is, I will vindicate you. And the reason I say vindicate here is because of how specific God is. He says in verse 2 that he's going to gather all the nations. That's, ex- that's comprehensive. That's exhaustive. All the nations. But then he's going to judge them specifically for the sins they've committed against his people. Right? Verse 2, uh, he says he's going to judge them on behalf of his people because the nations scattered them. They divided up his land. They sold them into slavery. Now, it's not like these horrible things don't happen to other people too, right? And, and we know that God will judge those sins on the final day as well. The Bible is very clear. Every sin will be judged, not just those done against his people. But here in this text, we see God's jealous possessiveness for his own people as he focuses in on those things that have been done specifically against them. He's outraged about their treatment. And it's not even that these things have been done against, you know, his people, against his land, but verse 3, against his most vulnerable people. A boy traded for a prostitute, a girl sold for some wine to treat the lives of little children like they were cheap. The price for one night of pleasure, sex, or wine. That is not only deeply offensive to God who formed those children in the womb, but an indication of just how corrupt a nation has become. Christian, the nations of this world They put a cheap price on the lives of children, aborting and trafficking them in numbers too terrible even to mention. And the following generations have been taught, right, through this, that life is cheap to be discarded and dismissed for the sake of personal pleasure or convenience. And so is it any surprise when our young people walk into schools and start killing we taught them that life is cheap. We, we gave them video games to train them how to kill. Do you think a jealous God will just let this happen, this treatment of life as if it were cheap forever? No, he will vindicate his people. And doesn't your heart just cry out for him to do so. Do you feel a righteous rush of of blood for the mistreatment of the vulnerable and the persecution of the righteous? Into our anger, the Lord speaks in verses 4 to 8 of his vengeance upon his enemies. And he transitions here to specific examples that would have spoken directly to Joel's first audience, right? He talks about these cities of Tyre and Sidon and the regions of Philistia. The the people he was speaking to would know these places. They remember the times when these nations came and, and ransacked the treasures of the Lord. Perhaps members of their own family were sold into slavery by these Nations. We see that in verse 6, far away across the sea, intentionally so that they could never come back. But the Lord 
speaks into the agony of his people. And he says of their enemies, I will return their payment back on their own heads. Twice he says that. He speaks directly to the nations, verses 4 and 6, and he's 7, and he's judging them now, and he says, what, what you did to my people, I will do to you. This is vindication. This is vengeance. This is the passion of a jealous God for his chosen possession. He will not always wait. His patience is his mercy. But there will come a day when his wrath will be poured out and its fire will burn forever. He will come as a mother comes in defense of their child. For he takes every evil done against his children personally. He tells his people's enemies in verse 4, Are you paying me back for something? I will pay you back. This text is a clear statement that our world will be held accountable to an absolute moral standard. As one commentator I read put it, wickedness will no longer triumph or be covered up or seem fascinating or attractive or be confused with goodness. No longer will what is evil be exalted, admired, envied, ignored, glamorized or trivialized. All that is forgotten by the world so quickly, so fast will be brought to light in that moment and judged as the Lord vindicates his people and he executes vengeance on their enemies. Well, the second layer we see here is verses 9 through 16, and we see judgment and refuge. So this is my second point, judgment and refuge. And you may have noticed, as you look at the text, I don't know if it showed up in the projector version, but you may have noticed that he switches here from prose to poetry, uh, which, which tells us, right, the image that he wants to communicate. It can't be conveyed with just normal language. So he's got to use poetic language to try to give us a picture, an idea of what this is all going to be like. And so he, he imagines a scene where all the nations of the world are called together for battle. He tells them to make all their preparations in verses 9 and 10 as if they're going to have a chance to defend themselves. And so the, the nations, they crowd into this valley of Jehoshaphat, waving their swords and their spears. And notice verse 10, they've turned even peaceful tools into Weapons of violence, and, and even their weakest people they've pressed into service and said, you be a warrior. But they find themselves shaking their weapons at God and his angelic hosts, right? Notice the end of verse 11. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. And then in verse 12, the Lord sits in judgment. This is an ominous scene. The nations are caught red-handed with, with their weapons of violence in their hands, gathered against God himself. The place that all find themselves when they fight against God, when they rebel against his laws. And when the harvest is ripe, when all of God's chosen people are brought in, and when the evil of the nations has, has reached its limit, the Lord will swing his sickle 
And in the valley of decision, he will separate the goats from the sheep. And the Lord Jesus himself will return, Revelation 19 tells us, with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This is God's judgment in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, this is not a real valley. Remember, this is poetic language. There's no valley that could hold all of the nations. Uh, this is an image of final judgment. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. God judges. What a terrible, terrible scene. Multitudes, multitudes in a giant commotion in a valley of decision awaiting God's judgment. Verses 15 to 16, they speak of the moment of God's judgment. The world grows dark, the heavens and the earth quake, and the Lord roars from Zion. We, we know about this moment of judgment, don't we? It's happened once already before, 2,000 years ago, when a man hung on a Roman cross, darkness fell on the land, and as that man died, the earth shook. Because God's justice had fallen upon him and been quenched. And that cross, that's the only way to escape this valley of decision, to escape the commotion. Jesus on the cross becomes our refuge and our stronghold. God's judgment is perfect. Every sin will be accounted for. And in the valley of decision, the books will be opened. And if your book is full of your deeds you will find yourself there shaking your pruning hook spear at the Lord and weakly claiming to be a warrior. But if you have called on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. For the Lord is a refuge for his people and to all those who ask, he gives Christ's book of righteous deeds. This is all the passion of God for his people on display. What do you think took Jesus to the cross and kept him up there while people mocked him? His jealousy to redeem his people. In the darkness of judgment, he is the light. In the shaking of doom, he is the firm rock where safety is found. And what does God do for his people and their enemies next? Verses 17 to 21 tell us the final chapter, the final layer, fruitfulness and desolation. So my third point, fruitfulness and desolation. All good stories, they deal with a difficult problem. How do we end? Right? It's hard to avoid a certain amount of letdown when the story ends because we all know that, well, things end, right? The, the hero gets old, he dies. The kids grow up. They leave home. After vacation, you got to go back to work. You're left with a certain emptiness when a story ends. Sort of like the desolation of Egypt and Edom described in verse 19. After all, its people have been judged, and no one is left. Some stories you know, they uh, try to avoid ending the story, but just like ending a little bit before it would normally end. But of course, that leaves you a little bit frustrated because we want resolution. Other stories, they, they kind of just, they keep 
adding on to the ending or uh, they just keep making more endings until everyone's confused and doesn't really care about how it ends anyway. Maybe you've seen a television show that fell into that trap. The only truly satisfying ending is God's ending, and Joel shines a little bit of light on it here in these final verses of his book. And again, he, he's continuing in poetry, right? This is something that you can't just describe, literally. You, you, can't, you couldn't make a movie out of this image. It wouldn't work. Uh, it's, it's an image, though, that he pictures for us of uh, continual fruitfulness and fertility. Uh, verse 17, a land that is holy, uh, trees that are holy, uh, dirt that is holy, uh, people that are holy. And not holy as in full of holes, but more like whole. More like whole as in complete and perfect. Uh, there's no strangers that pass through this land. Only those who belong there utterly, completely, and forever. There's no longing for something else. There's no need to travel because the inhabitants have exactly what it is that satisfies. They are completely home. The mountains drip sweet wine. The hills flow with milk and all the stream beds flow with water. Again, you can't make a movie of this, right? That would just look strange. It's an image of luxurious plenty. It's not just flowing with water. Milk and sweet wine. Rich luxury and plenty. And then at the center of that land, verse 18, is a fountain that flows forth from the house of the Lord and waters the valley of Shittim, which Shittim means acacia tree. And, and of course, acacia trees, if you don't know, these are trees that, dry, that they grow in dry, sort of desert-like places. And so, and so the idea here is that even you know, those dry places where only acacia trees would grow are watered. Now, a, a fountain, right? What does that mean? What's, what kind of an image is that? Well, fountains are a source, right? They're, they're the origin of something. And so here we have the source of all this life, all this fertility, all this fruitfulness in the land. And, and even more than that, fountains, right, they just, they just keep bubbling up from the ground seemingly forever. This is an image of unending, eternal fruitfulness. And what's so amazing about this picture is that in Israel's past, what happened? Life flowed into the house of the Lord, right? A continual flow. Sheep, cows, goats, pigeons, all these animals required to keep the people of God safe from judgment. Uh, life flowed into the temple to die. But now, because of the once-for-all death of Christ, Life flows out. In his death and his resurrection, he killed death so that the flow is reversed and now life flows out from him to his people forevermore. The flow of this life has begun. It, it cleanses us from our sin. It flows out from our hearts, right? Jesus said in John seven thirty eight, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers 
of living water. But the promise of Joel here is that the living water of God will flow not just into your hearts, but into your bodies and into this, this whole world, into a new heavens, a new earth, so that we have a land flowing with abundant life that is a true home, a, a true home for God and for his people. What does knowing and believing this do for you? It sets you free to live differently in the present. It tells you how passionately God is jealous for you, no matter what happens now. In, in one specific but very important part of your life, you know what will happen. You know the end from the beginning, just like God does. And if the decision that will be made about you on that final day has been decided now because you have called upon the name of the Lord, then you are eternally secure and you can live with a freedom, with a joy, with a generosity that others do not have the luxury of. Because in contrast, right, we see that the lands of God's enemies, here represented in verse 19 by Egypt and Edom, will be left desolate and empty. And we learn in the New Testament that these lands will be burned and refined by fire and then remade into the new heavens and the new earth that we read about earlier in Revelation chapter 21. And Joel goes on to end his prophecy with a final warning in verse 21, that God will avenge the innocent blood of his people. He is passionately jealous for his people. Now, Joel could have ended his prophecy with happy words and images, right? He had those. We were there. But he doesn't. Why? Because there's still time. There's still time. Church, this book of Joel is so relevant. It strips away all that we think is so important to build our lives on with the locust plague. It confronts us with the terrifying and urgent judgment of the Lord that is barreling towards this world. And it pleads with and comforts us with this gracious message of forgiveness and eternal fulfillment. Joel ends with one more warning, and then he disappears into history, leaving his message in our hands. What will you do with his warning? If you believe it, and have called on the name of the Lord, then you are Joel now. And the day of disaster, the day of repentance, the day of blessing, and the day of judgment, they are now yours to proclaim. Let's pray. We pray, O Lord, that you would strengthen us today to be prophetic proclaimers of the truths we find in this book of Joel. They show us that you are passionately jealous for your people. Which means 
that the way of certain salvation and blessing is open. And yet also that the reality of judgment on all evil, all wickedness is just as certain. We worship our anointed Savior this morning. He will come back to break all oppression and lead us into all fullness of life. We pray this in His precious and holy name. Amen. If you'll turn in your hymnals, we'll close with hymn number 311, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. It'll also be projected. Number 311, Hail to the Lord's Anointed.